Luke chapter 2, and we'll read together from verse 39 through the end of Luke chapter 2. While you're finding that, um, as Stephen said, I'm Andy Steger. I have been interning as a church planting resident. Uh, Part of my internship has been under uh, FUD and his leadership and uh, help, and he has been, and you all have been, as Remedy Church, a really uh, encouragement to me. Um, And I'm in the very beginning stages of um, planting another church here in Rock Hill that will uh, preach the gospel and hopefully live it out uh, for the community's benefit and for the glory of Christ, just as Remedy Church is all about. And so it's really exciting to have a, a great partnership in the gospel. And I'm thrilled to look forward to 2012 and what all that um, involves as partners uh, with one another in the grace of God. Uh, but that's who I am, in case you're, you were curious. Um, and if you don't like what happens in the next 20 minutes or so, don't worry, because I'm not going to be here every week. Um, Luke chapter 2 Uh, verses 39 and following. It's our custom here at Remedy Church to honor the Lord Jesus uh, because we believe that he speaks to us in his word. And so as he does, we like to stand together uh, and to give him reverence as he speaks to us. So please stand. These are the words of our great God to us. Uh, They're meant to instruct us and perfect us and call us to a closer followership of his son, Jesus. This is what uh, Luke writes in his gospel. And when they, that is, the family of Jesus, the earthly family, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, that's Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he, the Lord Jesus, said to to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus said, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would speak to us directly, that you would expose our uh, sinfulness and our patterns of sin, that you would apply the grace of the gospel to our needs at our most fundamental levels, and that you would change us from within. Remind us that we are your children if we are in Christ Jesus 
who are not in Christ Jesus, we pray that you would call us to your Son this morning. Thank you for your goodness to us and for providing your word for our instruction and ultimately for our salvation. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Christmas is over. That was a week ago. We've already had another holiday, New Year's Eve, under our belts. And today, of course, is New Year's Day. Um, Christmas, of course, celebrates the incarnation of Jesus. That means that the God of the universe took on flesh, incarnation. He became uh, flesh, and he dwelled among us. There is lots of mystery surrounding the notion of having the Son of God, the, the God of the universe himself, lying in a manger, right? I don't know if you've contemplated that over the last week, or if you do every year, or if the sentimentality of the season just kind of um, blurs all of that mystery out. I hope it doesn't. But there's a lot of questions that we could meditate upon about the incarnation, about the message of Christmas, such as, how does the baby in the manger as God managed to hold the universe into place? How can he hold the universe in place while he's dependent on his mother for his nutrition? That's a profound mystery. Babies are self-centered, right? How could they not be? Was Jesus as a baby? Does he ask politely to have his diaper changed when he dirties it? Or does he cry until someone does it for him? For the most part, though, infants, and I have one, uh, I've had three, infants are cute, and this is, of course, their survival mechanism, right? Um, if it weren't for their cuteness, um, they wouldn't survive. Um, there would be babies on, on church stoops all over the nation, but they survive because of their cuteness. We actually don't demand obedience from our infants, uh, mostly because they're cute, um, and, of course, they can't really provide obedience with us. But the result is that we seldom think about these questions when it comes to baby Jesus, when it comes to the incarnation. These things don't cross our minds. We just think God sent his son into the world, and uh, that son is a baby, and he's helpless. And that's about where it stops. We don't think much about what Jesus' infant temperament was actually like. But Jesus, of course doesn't just stop being an infant, um, have one episode of being 12, and then move on to being age 30. Jesus, of course, had to be, just like all kids, 3, and 6, and 9, and 12, and 15, and 18, and 21, and 25, before he was ever 30, when we hear about him doing his public ministry in the Gospels. So unlike Christmas... And its focus on the incarnation and baby Jesus, which sometimes we treasure as a beautiful mystery and sometimes we just wrap it up in sentimentality and move on from there after we have given gifts and all that. Unlike Christmas, this passage, which is at the tail end of Luke's introduction to his gospel, everything he said so far has been about Jesus in the incarnation. And after this passage, he's going to switch to grown-up Jesus and the prelude to his passion. But this passage has Jesus as a preteen, which is really something. And it reveals to us, if we're paying close attention, a, attention 
and a point of curiosity about Jesus as the sinless Son of God and yet as a teenager. And this is kind of mind-boggling. Jesus still has parents, right? Earthly parents. Is he still responsible to them, even though he's holier than them? Must he obey them, even though he created them? Must he grow up, even though he is the one in whom all, um, we all live and move and have our being? Must Jesus, have you thought about this, learn his ABCs? Must he learn his reading, writing, and arithmetic? Um, must he learn about uh, geography? What about algebra? Does he have to take algebra one and then follow it up with algebra two? Calculus? Anybody? What about politics? Does Jesus have to get a grip on what's going on in society during his day and age, or does that all just come automatically to him? Does Jesus have to develop uh, a sense of his social position, what it means to be a teenager? Does he have to grapple with uh, the history of philosophy and what it all means for how to live the good life in his situation now? Even when he is the one, Paul tells us, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Does Jesus have to learn this stuff? What about street smarts? Does Jesus have to become street smart? You know, you could learn until your head's uh, about to explode head knowledge and book knowledge, but that doesn't get you along in the world. Does Jesus have to learn how to deal with people in varying situations and in a complex social environment? The Bible only gives us one, one short hint at an answer to all these questions, and it's right here in this passage. And so it's an interesting passage just on that front to explore. This is incidentally the first time that Jesus both speaks and acts in the gospel accounts. The first time that we ever see Jesus open his mouth and do something. Um, And this is a great contrast, by the way, just as an aside from the so-called apocryphal gospels, right? You've heard of the lost gospel of Thomas and Judas and Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Andy Steger, and all these weird uh, documents. Um, I'm just kidding about the last one. Um, these documents are so different from the New Testament documents and so different from the authentic Gospels. Mostly you can tell the difference when you read about the childhood of Jesus. These Gospels, these apocryphal faker Gospels, are preoccupied utterly with the notion of a supernatural kid, Right? And that's what Disney and uh, DreamWorks and all these um, movie companies have made so much money off of. Like, what happens when a kid has superpowers? And, you know, 20 centuries ago, the gospel, the fake gospel writers were trying to capitalize on this and, and uh, gain some market share. And they have all these stories about Jesus uh, lifting things that he shouldn't be able to lift and jumping over things that he shouldn't be able to jump over and turning things into things that they had no business being and all of this stuff. Um, In contrast to those phony Gospels, which are just there basically to entertain us and are preoccupied with the superficial questions we might have about what it means to be the Son of God and to be a teenager, instead we have the Gospel. And instead we have the Gospels of the New Testament. And instead we have the testimony of the whole Bible. And the whole Bible listens to our questions. We have curiosities. Let me just mention some of them. 
But our, our Bible doesn't just listen to our questions. Our Bible says, hmm, interesting question. Let me tell you why that question is not the right one. And let me provide you with the right question and an answer that you would have never dreamed up yourself. The Bible ultimately turns around and interrogates us, even though we start the dialogue with our questions. The Bible provides us graciously with the right questions and then proceeds to answer them. And that makes them so much different from all the other phony documents out there and all the other religions that are just there to tickle our ears and make us uh, happy and healthy and wise and all the rest. But the Bible doesn't just challenge us. It doesn't just turn the question on us. This passage that we've just read doesn't just do that. But this passage and the whole Bible blesses us, having challenged us. And it takes our fixation off of our curiosities and puts our fixation squarely on the Lord Jesus because he is ultimately what the Bible is all about. He is the Redeemer, the one who brings good news even when he first brings bad news about our condition. So in the coming moments, let's talk about four things from this passage, keeping those things in mind. We'll talk first briefly about what's going on in this passage. Then we'll look at how does this passage challenge us, especially as parents, but also as peers. How does it challenge us, thirdly, as children, and also as inferiors? And where, fourthly, is the grace in this passage? See where we're going? What's going on here? How does it challenge us as parents? How does it challenge us as children? And having challenged us, where is the grace of the gospel in this passage? Let's jump in here. First of all, what's going on in this passage? Um, I've been obsessed this Christmas season with seeing the movie Home Alone. Um, And it hasn't happened yet. I've gone to the Redbox. I've gone to Blockbuster. I've gone to the... Uh, mom and pop shops to rent a movie. I've gone to Netflix Instant. I can't find Home Alone. If you have Home Alone, will you please give it to me? Um, I'll just borrow it for a couple of days. I want to watch it. It's, it's um, a movie I grew up watching, and it's set in Christmas, and it's full of laughs. Um, of course, the, um, the most expressive moment in Home Alone is when Kevin's mother realizes that they've left the house and left Kevin there. And you remember the expression that the camera fixes on her, and she goes, Kevin! Right? You remember that? Um, The realization that you forgot your kids. Uh, Incidentally, I've been thinking about um, having my kids watch this with us, um, but then I keep remembering that my oldest son, Deacon, is, uh, you you could just turn your back briefly on him in your own kitchen, and he's afraid that you're leaving him abandoning him, right? So this scenario is probably not going to be entertaining, especially when you get down to like the robbers and the guns and everything. Um, So I should probably wait a couple years before the family watches it together. But this realization that my kids, where are my kids? And this has happened to you if you're parents. Um, This has happened to you if you're kids. Where are my parents? (gasps) Imagine Mary and Joseph, and they're responsible for raising the Son of God. And they've gone a day's journey without their son, 12-year-old, 12-year-old boys. Boys will be boys, even if they're the son of God. Um, Where is my son? (gasps) I've blown it, right? And this is the predicament that they're in. Now, Luke doesn't put any blame on his parents. Parents were just following the customs. Everybody travels together. Jesus is with us. 
No big deal. He's not interested in assigning blame to parents. He's not interested in assigning blame to Jesus. There's no blame to be had for Jesus. He's just pointing up this crisis, where's my kid, and then what Jesus does to respond to it. And this happens all throughout the Gospels. There's a crisis, something is up, and we get to see how Jesus responds to it. And that tells us something about Jesus' character and how he saves us as our Savior. And that's happening here. (gasps) Where's Jesus? Turn around, go back. Three days later, you find him in the temple. What is going on in this passage? Well, Jesus is breaking his parents' heart. And this is going to happen over and over and over in the Gospels. In fact, in the passage just preceding this, you get a prophecy from Simeon. Remember, they take Jesus as an eight-day-old, and they dedicate him at the temple. And Simeon prophesies over him. He says, your son, boy, he's going to be really special. And one of the things that he says is that a sword, Mary and Joseph, will pierce your own soul also. We don't know exactly what that means. But one of the things that it means is it's going to be tough to raise the Son of God, especially as he nears the cross. And already he's 12 years old, and we get this instance that it's heartbreaking to raise the Son of God. It's heartbreaking to parent, period. And with, even when you know that God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, it's heartbreaking to raise kids because you can't control them, and they're all over the place. Um, this relationship causes great sorrow. What specifically, though, causes sorrow for Mary and Joseph that doesn't always cause sorrow for us as parents? Well, it's because Jesus is different than most of our kids, different than you were when you were a kid. Why is it sorrowful to be Mary and Joseph? Because Jesus is utterly devoted to his heavenly Father. And his heavenly Father has a priority over his earthly parents like we've never had in our own lives. Did you not know, Jesus says, uh, politely, I believe, as a 12-year-old respecting his parents, but did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And the word for house doesn't just mean temple. It means household. Don't you realize that you're my earthly parents and that my primary fixation is on my heavenly father and all of his prerogatives? So you're there are these painful obligations um, of being the child or the parents of someone following the Lord. Your father and I sought you with great pain, Mary says to him. And the priority of this relationship uh, makes all other relationships really tricky. Not everyone gets it that you're following Jesus. Your parents don't often get it. Nobody gets it perfectly all the time. And so any human relationship is fraught with trickiness at minimum and sorrow uh, very often because it's difficult uh, to watch somebody prioritize the invisible God of the universe and not just human relationships. So Jesus' parents are struggling here in this passage to allow their son to be a disciple. It's hard because parents want their children to be disciples of them. And I feel this deeply. I want my kids to be like me because I'm the best, right? That's not what Jesus is interested in. That's not what the Heavenly Father is interested in. So, first of all, what's going on here? Jesus' parents are having their hearts broken. Secondly, there's a power encounter that's being foreshadowed here in this passage. Did you catch this? 
Jesus is in the temple. And he's going to be in the temple all throughout his ministry, back and forth. And in fact, the first two chapters of Luke's gospel find Jesus back and forth, carted from the temple. He's not even um, an adult yet, and he's already gone back and forth from the temple, and his whole life has revolved around the established religion of his day and all of its religious apparatuses. And so throughout the gospels, Jesus is going to challenge the religious establishment, isn't he? He is going to go after organized religion, as we call it today. But he's going to go after organized religion sinlessly, perfectly. Even a deadly organized religion, like the one that is going to ultimately amount in his own crucifixion. Isn't this astonishing to think that Jesus wants to hang out among the people who 30 years later, at this point, 20-some years later, are going to be responsible for his crucifixion. I must be in my Father's house. I must be among these people. They're my people. They're the people of Jerusalem, of Israel. Jesus isn't anti-established religion. He isn't anti-organized spirituality. He isn't anti-temple. But instead, he's the culmination of all the devotion that's that's prefigured in the whole temple dealings, right? The temple was established to put God with us, just like the tabernacle of the Old Testament was. And Jesus isn't against all that, but he's come actually, of course, to fulfill it. He's not anti-religion. He's also not a spiritual anarchist. He's not a spiritual guru or even an entrepreneur, He's not the founder of a new religion. He's not writing a new law. He's not abolishing a law. He's coming to fulfill the law. He came to get back the religion that he founded before the foundation of the world, if you want to put it that way. And everyone actually accepted, it seems, expected the opposite from a Messiah. They expected a renegade, someone who would overthrow the system, especially the Roman system, But instead of being a renegade and a rebel, Jesus comes as a redeemer. And he comes to purchase back, that's what redeemer means, every aspect of what it means to be human and to live in society together and in the specific society into which he was born, which included the temple, the religion, and the practices that God had set up for his people. Jesus comes and submits to those things. But he does have a power encounter with the religious authorities. He came to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. And guess what? Religious leaders and the establishment, they don't like you fulfilling the law any more than they like you abolishing it. When Jesus comes and shows what the law really meant, as FUD's been preaching about for the last several months, it knocks the religious leaders' socks off and it infuriates them. Jesus is going to be crucified by these very people. But there he is, already at at work, fulfilling the law and ultimately redeeming some of these people, along with uh, the history of Israel and the religion that surrounds it. So Jesus has a power encounter. Uh, It's sort of prefigured as these gurus are sitting around and they're amazed at Jesus. And subtly in their hearts, their authority is being challenged by a 12-year-old. And it blows them away. So 
Jesus' relationship with his parents caused sorrow. Jesus has a power encounter with the religious establishment. Jesus, thirdly, and maybe most importantly, Jesus is perfectly submissive. Jesus is perfectly submissive. We see this uh, in verse 51 as it, Luke caps off this narrative. He says, he went down with them after he said these astonishing words to his parents. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to him, to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus grew, Luke tells us, in grace before God and men. This means that righteousness is not incompatible with disagreement, with argument, even with rebuke. But actually, in fact, sometimes Jesus demonstrates that in many instances, in order to practice righteousness, a rebuke is called for, a disagreement is called for. Um, You have to say something sometimes. To not say something is not to be like the Lord Jesus in holiness. But Jesus demonstrates, and Luke underpins, he's submissive. You must do these things um, with holy poise, demonstrating all the while that your loyalty lies with the Heavenly Father only. And it's because of this loyalty to your Heavenly Father that you must sometimes disagree, that you must sometimes call uh, people to repentance, that sometimes you must opt out, and other times you must rebuke people. But you do this out of your loyalty for the Heavenly Father alone, and you do it in holiness as Jesus did. What does holiness ultimately mean in the Bible? Holiness means set apart and reserved for God's purposes alone. Set apart and reserved for God's purposes alone. So we're perfectly submissive if we're like the Lord Jesus in this passage, even in the midst of correcting and rebuking even in the midst of a relationship where we are younger and the person that we're challenging is older. Jesus does this perfectly in this passage. So that's number one, what's going on in this passage, very briefly. And then number two and three move us on to the challenge of this passage. We've already hinted at it a little bit, but let's cut to the chase here. What does this passage demonstrate about what it means to be parents and what does it mean to be children in view of this passage? How does it challenge us in this way? Parents, do you really, really want your children to obey Jesus? Really? Like deeply from your gut? Do you really want your children to follow Jesus? Do you really want your children to be holy, given the definition that we've just made of holy? Completely set apart and reserved for the purposes of God alone for God's purposes not your purposes as a parent what happens for example if in following Jesus your children go somewhere that you don't particularly want them to go what happens if in following Jesus your children are called to a dangerous difficult life of service that wasn't what you dreamed of for your children What happens if, in following Jesus, your children are called to take a stand and to say unpopular things that will get them mocked, that will cause real psychological damage to them? That's maybe my greatest 
uh, fear about my children is that they will get messed up in the head because the world will beat them down. Well, what happens if following Jesus means that this is par for the course? Do you really want your children to follow Jesus? Are you in this parenting thing so that you can have your wishes for your children? So that you can live vicariously through them? So that all of your childhood dreams could be fulfilled in them as they weren't in you? So that you can give your kids a more comfortable life than you had? Not a bad thing on the surface, but if it's your ultimate goal to make your kids' lives easier, if it's your ultimate desire to make your kids happy, you're not going to want them to follow the Lord Jesus because he's going to lead them into difficulty and unhappiness a good amount of the time. What if your kids following Jesus means that he's calling them to lose their life in order that they might find it in him? What if Jesus and his ambitions become they're all in all and not your desires for your children. The same exact questions, well, sort of the same, can be applied to our peers. Our peers are in our life because they complement our lives. They enrich our lives. They give our lives more meaning. We uh, get together with people. We become close friends with people because they enhance our lives. What happens if Jesus wants to enhance our friends' lives in ways that don't enhance our lives, and he calls them away from us, or he calls them to do something uh, that isn't particularly convenient for us. Are we in this for us? Or are we placed in our families? Are we placed with our children? Are we placed with our peers in order to facilitate and encourage their close following of Jesus? no matter where Jesus leads them. That's the first challenge. How does it challenge us as parents? Well, it challenges us to let go and encourage them to follow Jesus. Number three, how does it challenge us as children and by extension as inferiors, people who are under authority of other people? How does it challenge us as children, whether we're kids still or whether we're grown children and have parents? Well, the first thing we need to remember is, you know, do we think that we know it all? We absolutely don't know it all. Because right here in this passage, the one who did know it all amazed his, el his elders with his understanding, but he didn't insult them or act like a know-it-all with them. He didn't dishonor them, even as he demonstrated that he, in fact, seemed to know it all. Now, Jesus developed in his knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that he was slicker and um, a better speaker and had more articulate understanding um, when he was 30 than when he was 12. He developed. But right here at 12, he gets it, and they don't, and they're blown away by it, and he doesn't rub it in their faces. Instead, he sparks curiosity and amazement and astonishment that he hopes ultimately through his ministry will be fanned into flames of devotion for him um, and followership. Jesus doesn't insult the people that he challenges. Um, he doesn't, when he knows it all, rub it in people's faces. We don't know it all. Besides, we don't have both the privilege 
and the burden of being the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Um, are we willing to follow Jesus, even if it means, ultimately, that our parents will disapprove of us? Even if it means that we will sometimes have to challenge what our parents believe and think? What about our bosses? What about our professors? What about all the people in authority? What about our pastor? You know, our pastors are in authority in some sense over us, but they're not Jesus. Do we have the guts and the trust in Jesus to follow Jesus even when it means that we have to carefully navigate how to disagree with them and to follow Jesus even if it means parting ways with people? And we must do it like Jesus did it without sinning against them without arrogance, without pride. Are we willing to do this? Are we ready to follow Jesus and not sin against our parents, our boss, our professors, our superiors? What about our attitudes as children? What about our behaviors as young people? We're called to be reserved for God's purposes only, to be holy from day one, not when we get to be 18, then we put all of our childish, immature, and rebellious ways behind us. No, right where you are, whether you're 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, or 18, or whether you're a grown adult and with your parents, you're called to be reserved for God's purposes, not to obey when you get around to it, not when you turn 18. And so that means we can't excuse the typical youthful rebellious sins that we're so used to excusing because we're just young and that's what young people do. That means that lust must be uh, pulled out of our lives now as young people. That means that laziness, sloth, has no place for young people and not just grown-ups, not just 40 and 50-somethings, not just people from the greatest generation of my grandparents. But wherever you are, you've got to put that nonsense away means that rebellion never characterizes us, whether we're 3 or 13 or 23 or 63. It means that the self-absorption that we often associate with being a kid has no place for our lives because we follow Jesus, the one who was a youngster and was not self-absorbed. And of course, vanity uh, along with it. We can't be about ourselves and to love ourselves so much, and love the Lord Jesus. We can be reserved for Jesus alone. That's the challenge to us as children in the face of our inferiority when it comes to our parents and all the rest. So there's what's going on in the passage. There's how it challenges us as parents. There's how it challenges us as children. What about the grace? It's great to have a big lump of challenge. You feel really challenged now, don't you, right? You're out to go and uh, rewrite your New Year's resolutions now to include uh, sending your parents cards and calling them and respecting them and not talking back, right? Um, as, as parents, you're ready to rewrite your New Year's resolutions to seek your children's flourishing and that they would become fully mature uh, followers of Jesus because you're going to release them to follow Jesus and guide them along the way, right? You feel challenged. You're pumped up for 2012. You're like, no, I mean, no, but 
It is a challenge, and it's a heap of burden and a weight on us as both children and as parents and as grown-ups. So where's the grace in the passage? Well, it starts with the fact that Jesus wet his diapers, believe it or not. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Jesus had to get potty trained. Did you realize that? Jesus had to have his grammar corrected when he goofed it up by his parents. Jesus had to figure out what the customs of his day were. He had to figure out how to behave in light of those customs, respectfully, but as a follower of his heavenly father, as a three-year-old, as a six-year-old, as a nine-year-old, as a 12-year-old, as a 15-year-old, and all the rest. And he did all of this stuff before we even read about what he really did in the Gospels as a 30-year-old. He just shows up some 18 years later um, doing his public ministry. But all throughout those years, Jesus was doing all of this and was growing. And all throughout those years, we need to really remember that he was substituting himself for us. It's not explicit in the Gospels, but it's implied by passages like the one that we had today. That Jesus, as an 18-year-old, living as an 18-year-old, or a 15-year-old, or a 25-year-old, lived in substitution for your life as a 15-year-old, as a 25-year-old, as a 3-year-old. Jesus lived the life of devotion that we have not lived. He was living the childhood we were called to live, but we failed to live, and he lived it in our place. He was living his teenage years as we were called to live them, but failed to, and he did it in our place. The old theologians of the first couple centuries used to say about the incarnation of Jesus, they used to say that what was not assumed was not redeemed. What was not assumed was not redeemed. What they meant by that was that Jesus had to be so completely human and had to experience everything of what it was like to be human. And any aspect of humanity apart from sin that Jesus didn't assume to himself and experience, he did not therefore redeem. So what does this mean for us? It means that even while uh, Luke was passing over all of those years of Jesus' youth and cutting to the chase, Jesus was substituting himself for us. He was living the life that we couldn't live, that we didn't want to live, that we failed to live. And he assumed our humanity and all of its difficulties and social complexities and physiological and psychological complexities. And he navigated all of those as the Son of God wanting to do his Father's will. So that when he shows up on the scene and he's 30 years old and he goes out to the Jordan River to be baptized, the clouds can part, the Spirit can ascend like, descend like a dove, and the voice can come out of the clouds saying what? This is my beloved Son whom I love. And I am so pleased with him. I am so pleased with him. 
the pleasure of the Heavenly Father is just remarkable to think of. That here he has this son and he's about to release him, as we as parents ultimately must do with our children, release him into the dark trial of his earthly ministry. And he looks at his son and he says, there's the son that I've always wanted and never quite had in all of us. There he is. This is my beloved son, and I'm so pleased with him. Jesus, as a youngster, had to cry. He had to ache. He had to lose friends. He was picked on. He went through puberty and all of the rest. He didn't just assume our physical flesh, but he assumed with it all of the difficulties, emotional and physical and psychological and spiritual, that we feel every day and that especially we feel as young people. And he navigated these complexities and these temptations of our life in a broken world, and he navigated them with holiness when we didn't. He grew in grace before God and man, which means that he did this better and better and better and better as every year went by. He successfully did all this in our place because we haven't and because we won't. And now it makes us want to because we have a strong captain of our salvation who's able to save us to the uttermost. This gets rid of all of our excuses for why we aren't following Jesus more closely. This puts 2012 into a completely different perspective because the Son of God has come and he's dealt with 2011, so to speak. And the Son of God is on the throne reigning in glory and majesty and with complete sovereignty and with a hand extended of grace to lead us as the eternal king all the way through through 2012. And nothing that comes upon us will surprise him. No temptation that we endure in 2012 is beyond his power to lead us through safely. 2012 belongs to Jesus, doesn't it? he assumed our flesh and he went through our 2011 in our place and he did it perfectly and with utter holiness you ready to give your life to Jesus Christ in 2012 gosh I am I hope that you are make your new year's resolutions you know make your lists or whatever Um, but more than anything else Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a child, whether you're a young adult, whether you're an old man or an old woman, he is so worthy of it because he's been through it all and he's been through it for our poor sakes. And he's reigning triumphantly now. This is A.D. 2012. You know what I mean? It's the year of our Lord, 2012. Let's live it for his glory and with a full comprehension of his grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who means everything to us, whether we admit it, whether we live like it or not, how we long to live like it, how we long to believe it more fully in our hearts so that that belief 
in him would manifest itself in a close followership of him. We pray that you would temper all of our relationships because Jesus perfectly tempered his relationships so that he could follow you and love the world. Thank you that when you sent your son, you did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but because you love the world, you sent him to save it. So we pray that you would take our posture toward our parents, toward our children, toward our coworkers, toward everyone that we encounter, and towards the world as a whole, and that you would change it and make it like the posture of our Lord Jesus who came to save it. We don't have the power to save it, only you do. But as your disciples, we long to be sent out into the world uh, to obey, to love, and to serve our Lord Jesus, even as we love and serve the world around us. We pray that many would know that we are your disciples and that we're following close after you because of the love that we have for one another and because of the hand of mercy and the message of grace that we extend to the world. Thrill us now with your presence as we worship Remind us of your promises. Uh, Buoy our spirits. Uh, Lift our hearts up to where you are. Give us a glimpse into your heavenly throne room where you're worshipped by angels and archangels and the whole heavenly host. And remind us that our Savior is real and that he's alive. Help us to worship him now in spirit and in truth, knowing that he is a great God and a great king above all gods. We ask it in his great name.